UK Motor Talk. Welcome to this, the second week of the poor quality recording Graham over WhatsApp specials. Uh, Graham, uh, how are we this week? Uh, we're just fine. I'm glad to know that all of the team are all well. I've been contacting friends in Spain who are uh, increasingly affected by the lockdown. I did manage to make one escape. Uh, I was trailed ahead last week. I was somewhat in a, in a cleft stick in as much as yes trying to follow the government advice to not go out but I was presented with a scenario whereby a car that I had bought and paid for and was being MOT'd and the repairs consequence upon the MOT um, and basically the garage was saying well if you don't pick it up today we're closing at the end of today and won't be reopening for the foreseeable future so we had to go and collect Volvo and I'm very well pleased with it you will know uh, that I'm a sort of long-time Volvo owner, but then um, you know, shifting radio stations and all the kit that we have to shift sometimes, it's uh, an essential vehicle for me. A big brute of a vehicle for getting your kit around. But we've done all that before, so we're not going to do that again. No, OK, but um, it is... It, is um, it, it costs them a bit more money, I think, than they thought. It was the, the, the MOT picked up more than they thought it would, and I insisted on them changing the cam belt. You're buying... You know, a relatively high mileage vehicle, anything over sort of 70, 80,000 miles should have had its cam belt changed. And if it hasn't, make it a condition of sale because it is a job you could do yourself. I have done them, but they are tricky. Uh, you can lose a couple of days on it and if you get it wrong, basically you're going to launch the engine. So um, make it a condition of sale if it's a highish mileage vehicle. Yes, curiously, when I got my car... Um... I didn't know whether it had been done, but I went to the nice people at Vauxhall and asked them what they thought, and they tapped, tapped, tapped to their computer for a couple of minutes and told me, oh, yes, that was done 107,000 miles or whatever it was meant to be. So uh, not to worry. All right. <laughs> so they, they know oh, more about right. your car than you do. <laughs> well, in, indeed they do, although, um, of course, it doesn't feature on the MOT. Maybe it's one of those things that should, but because... Uh... You know, the MOT is becoming more and more extensive. Oh, um, but the MOT, they hardly even open the bonnet, do they? Well, exactly so. You know, and maybe some of these things should be checked, certainly. It's a bit hard to check, though, isn't it? Within half an hour of an MOT. <laughs> Most of them have got a top cap you can fairly easily lift off and just take a, you know, a visual punt on the condition. And if it looks at all suspect, ask for it to be changed. You know, a garage would charge, I don't know, 100, 150 quid to do it uh, but if it saves you putting a new engine in it's well worth doing as i say make it a condition of sale yeah i think if you get away with 150 quid to get it done i think you'd be doing quite well actually <laughs> i seem to remember at least 450 i was being quoted for mine well there we are you see you will go to main dealers and i go to no, no, smaller no, no. this was an independent <laughs> in fact two two well, separate independents were quoting and 400 and something i'd hate to think what That's the main dealer would have wanted to charge no i hadn't realized quite how expensive it had become but um on that basis the dealer that sold me the car lost some money but um <laughs> But you gained, and that's the important thing. Well, exactly. But I don't know actually what they paid for the car, but a word to car dealers in the future. If you tell me that it's only had two owners, and I can find that out, check that fairly easily, and that you bought it from one of the owners, it's not a good idea to leave in the glove box the auction ticket. <laughs> Always a giveaway. <laughs> yes. 
while I can't find out what they paid for it, unfortunately, because the auctions is closed down, as everybody has, it just is slightly incriminating. But there anyway, I'm still I'm still very pleased with the car. And that's the uh, important thing. Yeah. When you're allowed to use it, then it'll be lovely. Well, indeed so, which perhaps leads us on to, um, you know, one of the things I have done, having bought two used cars within a, a couple of weeks, um, mm. I've made sure that I've serviced both of them. You've got loads and loads of spare time on everybody's hands. You may not service it to the extent that I would, but even just doing basic mechanical checks is a must. You know, these are things you should be doing every week anyway. And don't make the excuse you can't get the parts because all these things are available online. So certainly, you know, even just simple stuff like checking the fluids, it doesn't matter where your car is, whether it's on the street or if you're as lucky as I am to have a drive uh, to do these things. Just pop the lid and do the basic fluids, the basic checks. And if you don't know what they are, I'll run through a quick list. But UKMT has got far more information than we can deal with in this podcast, including videos showing you how to do all of these things. And and they're not difficult, are they, really? This is the the thing that uh, people are daunted by modern vehicles, but actually the basics are still relatively simple, and even someone silly as me can do it. Well, no, you have more mechanical knowledge than you're letting on. But nevertheless, um, you know, these, these are very, very basic things like chopping up your, your water stroke antifreeze, chopping up the oil, the brake fluid, the power steering fluid. Perhaps, you know, sometimes the auto box fluids are a little more difficult to get at, but it's still worth checking if you can. And some distilled water in the top of the battery. You know, all basic things. And then checking the tyres. We, I think most people will know it's, you know, two millimetres is a safe minimum. It's just above the legal minimum, which is 1.6, but go for two millimetres. Most of us feet. would go for a little bit more, really, wouldn't we? Well, indeed so. The more you've got, the safer it is. You know, you want a decent chunk of tread on all four wheels. You know, with a, uh, most front drive cars, you know, a preference towards a better tread on the fronts than the rears. But either way, you know, uh, as I was reminded by one of the emails that came our way recently. By the way, this, the sound you can hear is a bumblebee who's decided to put <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, yes, you're sitting in the garden again, and we get it. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the garden studio with the birds that demand equity rates for their contributions. <laughs> what, are, what are we coming to? And, but perhaps with the cars sitting still, it's not things like the tyres wearing out, because they're not going to wear out while they're sitting still, but the tyre pressures are going to be... Yes. variable aren't they and things like your battery they, i mean if, if you come back to your car after a couple of days at christmas the battery can be not quite strong enough to get your car going can't it quite so i mean it, it does make sense i think to uh, run your car every day even if it's only for five minutes or so but there are two things to remember about that and particularly if your car is parked in the street you know 100 yards from your house yes do all that basic servicing but make a list of all the things you need to take with you to do so first so that you're not walking backwards and forwards and leaving the car unguarded, unprotected. There are opportunists around. If you think that you can just switch the engine on and walk away and leave it, you put yourself at risk because you've left a vehicle running with the keys in it. And again, opportunists will decide to relieve you of it. But the other thing is most cars will idle at, let's say, between 800 and 1,000 RPM. At that sort of engine speed, the battery isn't being charged. You need to sit there. Most cars these days have a rev counter. You need to sit there with your foot lightly on the pedal and and run it, obviously, in neutral at around 1,500 RPM, that sort of thing. 
And if you do that for five minutes, you know, that's not major pollution, given the fact that pollution levels are plummeting worldwide because there are no vehicles or very few vehicles moving. But you will perhaps save your battery that when you come out a few days later, the car will actually start when you need to make one of your emergency trips to the grocers or you know the butchers or whatever <laughs> the grocers um, yeah. what, what decade are you in <laughs> uh, one thing that I, yeah. I mean rather than actually going out and starting my car i've got the little jump starty battery thing we don't need another car to jump start it which of course is uh, the other option yeah no that, that, those help and they are those uh, devices are smaller and smaller personally i prefer the bigger power pack but then i seem to be beset by constantly jump starting vehicles not now with a new volvo not, i hope no 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 i'm, I'm just thinking <laughs> that you know it, people get to know that you've got a power pack and people uh. in the village was can i come and borrow your power pack and invariably they want to borrow you with it um and that's fine you know that's uh, i'm quite happy to do that but there, there's some very very small ones now that you can use or again if you're if your car's sitting in the drive it's not a bad idea to get hold of a battery charger you know and and just put it on a gentle trickle charge and do that you know, a couple of times a week for a couple of hours. It's it's all going to help and it does mean that the car, when you can drive it, and when you need to drive it, will be there for you. Now, with the trickle charger, do you actually have to disconnect the battery from the car or can you clip it on with the bonnet open uh, sitting in front of your garage? Yes, basically. Uh, I've always done it that way and I've never had a problem with doing so. There might be others that take a contrary view to that. I don't know. But I've always just, uh, in the situation where I just want to trickle charge it, as long as you make sure the ignition is off so that nothing can flow through any of the other circuits, it's really not a problem. You know, you're only trickle charging literally at a very low rate, so uh, you're not going to have any major incidents. But again, you know, leave it for uh, a couple of hours, but obviously only do that if your car is in a protected position. So, amongst other things in the news, of course, the uh, potential of Formula One. Will it start again? Won't it start again? Bernie sticking his oar in. <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, yes, uh, Bernie, uh, contentious as ever, uh, is suggesting that uh, the FIA should um, just abandon 2020 uh, and go for a re- complete restart in 2021. I guess if you've got Bernie's money, it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> well, it, exactly. And and if Bernie is not directly losing money as a result of that, I'm sure that he would advance that view. I think those that now own Formula One would be uh, crying into their beer because they've already <laughs> lost a bundle of money. And I mean, the idea has been mooted of a restart to the season at the end of July with the Canadian Grand Prix. I'm not convinced about it i think we've got a longer way to go than that if nothing else all the factories have to open again and people have to be doing things and stuff has to be properly moving doesn't it precisely so and you know and a a lot of the factories at the moment or certainly a number of teams have committed themselves to designing and building ventilators well given the fact that the you know these are amongst the highest tech factories engineers designers etc etc they can turn their hands to anything and and ProDrive and Williams and and McLaren and Mercedes uh, have all committed themselves with other engineering groups to designing, building, getting type approval, etc., uh, and just using their resources because 
all these people are effectively sitting at home, sitting on their hands and not doing very much. Arguably but, a lot more useful than Formula One, particularly at the moment. Well, quite so, although I've little doubt that, you know, I'm jokingly saying they're sitting on their hands, not doing anything. <laughs> uh, I would suspect that a lot of the engineers and designers, people like Adrian New, they're not sitting at home, not doing anything. You know, their brains are working feverishly on the, the next thing to develop. And, and, you know, I've interviewed Adrian Newey several times. You know, he's the most successful, I think, in the recent era of F1 designers. And he, he just doesn't stop thinking. Uh, and what prompted that thought was I came upon from our archive an interview I did with him some years ago now where he talked a bit about the design process, about his thinking behind it. Uh, and some of his favourite cars. When I first came into Formula One with the Leighton House car in '88, that was a car I have fond memories of. It was at the time, at the end of the tur turbo era, so the turbo cars had got really quite big and fat and hauled, just hauled big wings around, not very aerodynamically efficient. So he came in with a very small, normally aspirated car that was um, actually very quick for its day, finished second, led a race at the end of the season against the, the big turbo cars. And kind of changed changed the the route that design had been taking a bit, which um, so that was good. My season with Damon in '96 was very good. Really enjoyed that working with him, and we had a we had a really good year. And then in '98 with Mika, um, again a great year. So those I think would be my my highlight years. There's a lot of really good uh, world championship leading cars there, but you, you've always been at the forefront of those design moves. You've led those design movements. Well, I've tried to be innovative. Um, it's it's diff becomes increasingly difficult because the rules get tighter and tighter each year, so there's less room to manoeuvre. But I, I guess I buzz out of introducing something new if we can. But it has to stand on its merits, and also it has to be something which you believe will have a reasonable life. If you sort of go off and do something on a whim and then have to backtrack after a year, then that seems a bit of a failure. It, it does seem to me slightly bizarre that uh, the engine and gearbox seem to be becoming less and less important and aerodynamics and tyres seem to be the two critical things, or well, the aerodynamics to make the best use of the tyres. The gearboxes are fairly well established now, so the gearbox is mainly a packaging exercise. With the semi-automatics then there's not a lot, of, it's difficult to get big jumps there. Um, with, so I think the tyres, the, the aerodynamics and the engine power are very important. Of course, engine power varies according to the circuit, so somewhere like Monaco doesn't make so much difference. Go to, say, Montreal, um, it's very much a power circuit, Indianapolis to an extent, so it depends on the circuit we go to. Given your time at McLaren, there have been a few problems, I know, this year. You are introducing, imminently, a, a new sort of mid-season car. That's been a real struggle, I would imagine, to do that, because you normally have quite a long lead time on a new car. Well, it's not a totally new car. It's an, I would say it's very much an updated car. Virtually all the mechanical parts are the same as the existing car. Um, and it's a car which we've been planning for a long time. The, the 19A that we've been running since the start of this season so far was very much a tidied-up version of the 18, which we didn't race last year. So performance-wise, it was the 18. Um, we knew that wouldn't be enough, so the development on the car that we will race in France actually started about last July. Um, we've concentrated on the aerodynamics and on some areas of the rear suspension which we weren't happy, but because the car's basically mechanically the same, then we hope to be 
reliable straight away and that's that seems to be working out. So far we've had three days at Silverstone and now four days down at Hareth. Um, and the car's actually been, the drivers like us and it's been very reliable in those two tests so that gives us the confidence to race it next weekend. I guess uh, Reth was both uh, more productive and rather more pleasant in terms of climate. It was, well, it was the other extreme. It was about, I think we got 41 degrees at midday, which is great if you're sunbathing. But it's um, not the easiest thing to work in and keep your concentration. What are, what's your view on the, the sort of forthcoming rule changes? I know you're involved in those, as are all the team's designers and engineers. It's becoming, uh, there seems to be a desire by the FIA to change things quite dramatically and quite quickly, and particularly Max Mosley's pushing through changes that some of you might not be that, that happy with. Well, Max has, does have a, the responsibility to make sure the cars are safe, that the performance doesn't go too, too high, and one has to respect him for that. Um, I'm simply keen that whatever changes are made are done in a well-thought-out and rational manner. And I think if, uh, if the teams and, and the FIA can work together, then we should be able to come up with a good solution. Well, I think it's perhaps interesting to observe that we're, we're here at Goodwood, we're at the Festival of Speed, seeing uh, over a century of motorsport go past us. And I guess as long as there's been a governing body, they've been trying to make the cars go a little bit slower. Well, that's yes. I mean, the, the governing body's function is, is, for me, is primarily safety. And safety comes in two ways. It comes from if you like primary safety, which is if the car has an accident, um, how well the, it, it absorbs the impact, how well it protects the driver. And then there's a secondary safety of slowing the car down in the first place so that it doesn't go off the, leave the track at such a high speed. And uh, you have to blend those two together. What do, you, what do you think of Goodwill? I think this is your first time here. It's not actually. I came here many years ago in, I think it was the second and third ones, which was 94 and 95, memory serves me well, and drove a Williams up the hill. Um, oh, that's right, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, so, but no, it's great to be back. It's a, I think it's a superb event, and it's, um, it's obviously tremendously popular, and Charles March has done a fantastic job. Yeah, he's done a great job. I, I do remember you going up the hill now, because I also remember... Ron stalling one of the uh, museum cars that he'd brought along to play with that weekend and I helped push him, uh, push start him up the hill which is, um, as I said at the time, probably the first time Ron Dennis has been pushed into anything by anybody. <laughs> yes, I didn't know that. I'd have given him a bit more stick for it if I'd known that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Adrian. Thank you Thanks much. for your time. Thanks. Okay. Well, crikey, that, that uh, was obviously quite some time ago, Graham. Well, that was uh, chatting to... Adrian Newey at Goodwood, and before some of the greatest of his successes when he moved to Red Bull, and um, Goodwood was the place where the deal was done for him to move to Red Bull. Ah. Um, and if you ask me how I know that, I know that because I asked the man that did the deal with Adrian Newey, <laughs> a certain Mr. Horner, who uh, said, yes, okay, some years later, he said, yes, okay. But there we are, he went then went on to... Um, design cars that took four world championships. He's done uh, all right in, since, in, hasn't he? Yeah, and, and you know, and now he's, um, he's still with Red Bull, and Red Bull have given him licence to do all kinds of other things, like designing super yachts. Uh, and, of course, the current project is the um, Aston Martin hypercar. So despite the fact that Aston Martin have now um, gone off to do their own thing in Formula One, the bit that Red Bull salvaged to that, and I think they were somewhat surprised... Uh, that Aston Martin had gone in that particular direction. Mm. But they did manage to keep the hypercar project going because it is very important to both of those parties. Newey is very much 
a part of that, the hypercar is his brainchild. And Red Bull needs to allow Newey to go technically where he needs to go if they are to retain him in the Formula One team. Christian Horner said to me once that Adrian Newey was a man who's so far outside the box, he's standing outside it looking in. Um, <laughs> in a designer, that's a good thing, yes. Indeed it is. I mean, he described him in another occasion I spoke to Christian Horner. He sat at the breakfast table at one race meeting and on the back of an envelope redesigned the mini gearbox because he didn't think it was particularly well designed. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Alec Isagonis would have had something to say about that. He'd probably thrown Newey's cornflakes at him or something. Yeah. And, and there's me wasting my time eating bacon sandwiches at breakfast. <laughs> So in other positive news then, it sounds like Ferrari are hoping to reopen, and that's easy for me to say, uh, their factories at uh, Modena and Maranello on the 14th of April. They've even named the date. Yes, uh, it's interesting, given that um, we've talked already about uh, optimism in, in Formula One and, and in sports car manufacture, but uh, suggesting that given all the, the troubles in Italy, I, I find that a very surprising statement. Uh, and I think it will come back to bite them. It, it's it's on a par with um, Donald Trump's let's all get in the churches at Easter because everything will be over by then. Yes. Um, Over-optimism rather than just optimism. Extreme optimism, uh, I think. And while it will be great to see them back, I, I can't see. You know, Ferrari is a very, very wealthy company, both the sports car manufacturer and the F1 team. Both uh, have huge resources at their disposal and I can't see that they would want to prejudice that in any way by by trying to go back too early particularly as if they do so I would be very surprised if the regional and national governments don't um, don't tell them off as a well, minimum so I'd be very surprised if that happens perhaps they're just hoping to reopen a little bit of it, get something open. I mean, they mentioned the supply chain and, you know, the proviso that if the supply chain is working, then they'll be ready to receive. The uh, logistical uh, industries are involved with moving food and medicines and masks and uh, respirators, shipping parts for sports cars, <laughs> for the ultra, perhaps a little bit down the spectrum of urgency. I would suggest that's probably very true. And in similar kind of urgency, uh, moving on to other positive news, which we mentioned Morgan last week as being one of our smaller manufacturers in the UK. Uh, and uh, within the last few days, uh, we've seen pictures and they've got big shiny examples of their 70th anniversary models. Now, they're only making 20 of them and they've all been sold already. And they've made four and they've shut the factory for a bit. <laughs> I mean, good good luck to them. I mean, they've, they've shut the factory because clearly they've had to. Yeah. And... and the, the, the press release was curiously jarring. I mean, I, I typically, uh, and I know you do too, I, I would typically get somewhere between 50 and 100 press releases a day. Uh, and at the moment, that has is, that is slowed to a trickle. Nevertheless, this was uh, certainly a highlight that uh, came out. Uh, and long may they reign. You know, 70 years is, is, a, is a major achievement for such a low volume manufacturer the cars remain incredibly desirable bizarrely they've changed very very little yeah uh, in was well, in external appearance from from the much earlier models they've been essentially cladding 
the cars with with hand beaten aluminium um, and over um, wooden frames almost since day one. And and yes, all of the other technologies around that have, have changed. But bear in mind, an awful lot of aircraft in World War Two had uh, were built of timber, and some were timber and canvas, and uh, were very successful for all of that. So they've stuck with what have become really niche skills, but nevertheless, some great examples of British craftsmanship. The makes that time forgot. This is a new series that we're going to be running in the coming weeks, an opportunity to raid the extensive motoring library, which is the UKMT sort of reference backbone. So new series, The Makes That Time Forgot. Where did this come from? Well, basically, uh, it came from uh, me seeing quite recently a Borg word, Isabella, It was only the second one I've seen in the last, I think, 30 years or so. They're not exactly common, but I did see one on the road, and the previous one I saw was somewhere in the 1980s in Amsterdam. (laughs) But that's a different story. (laughs) That's a different story. But uh, I've only ever seen two. Both of them were white. With hindsight, I may even have been looking at the same one. Perhaps they were (laughs) a little bit like Henry Ford, only offered in the color white. But... um, that then leads me on to uh, other makes that, that have basically fallen by the wayside over the years. I'm not going back too far. I'm only going back into the, the post-war cars because if I were to go to the earliest days of motoring, there would be thousands of makes, some of which only ever built one car. So we're not going to go there. <laughs> that that can take a bit of time, yes. <laughs> don't have that time. But I'm going to start with, with Borgwood. But um, just a few of the makes that came to mind. Uh, Talbot Largo, uh, again, because I've only seen one of those in the flesh, and I think I was about eight at the time. Auto Union, DKW, Pegaso, Steer, Isotta Fraschini, you know, these are things that uh, some of us will have seen in film or video or, or in museums, but I've been lucky enough to see a few of them in the flesh. Some of them, thank you, uh, Goodwood, but, but by uh, haunting other museums and just uh, being around a long time. Seems I don't think I've actually heard of uh, any. I mean, Tal- Talbot was an aim in amongst that lot, which is presuming it's the same Talbot survived a little bit longer, but uh, th- these are names that really have properly disappeared, aren't they? They are all long gone. Most didn't survive the, the middle 50s. So why, why didn't they? Well, before we go into Borgward, let's, what, what are the sort of generally the reasons why? They had very poor business management. They didn't keep up with the technology. They didn't keep up with fashion changes. Or they were bought out. And a, a lot of the makes that we will talk about are still there. For example... Why are the four rings on an Audi car? Because the Audi brand actually comprises four German makes that were put together. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Borgwood came out of the post-First World War of Germany. They used their factory to restart making radiators for cars. And they were very, very good at making radiators. Karl Borgwood was a very good engineer and He's found himself in the slightly odd position of supplying radiators to manufacturers of very, very small cars, sometimes three-wheelers, very primitive cars. And a lot of these makes were sort of financially struggling. So he started buying up some of these smaller companies 
and started off making fairly rudimentary four-wheel, four-door family cars. But he designed uh, a car called the Isabella, or good Isabella. You can look and find photos of it online. It's a very, very pretty coupe, certainly uh, reminiscent of, of some later Pininfarina designs, I think, but a very good-looking car. It was the early Porsches that it reminded me of, oddly enough, that, that, yeah, that, that well, aerodynamic it, look. Very Porsche, very much uh, along the same lines at pretty much the same time. As they went into the 50s, I mean, I think the Isabella first appeared in 54 and then got a slightly larger engine a little bit later on. It had some, um, you know, aside from sales success, it had some sports car racing successes nationally, certainly within Germany, within Europe, you know, as sports car racing was uh, taking off again into the mid to late 50s. Mm. Not hugely successful, but, you know, still a force to be uh, considered. But the company collapsed in 1961, just shortly before uh, Karl Borgward's death in, in, in 63. But he was an engineer of the old school who, again, he, the problem was the company didn't really outlive him. He outlived his ability to, to keep up with what was changing in the world in the technology and in the design and, and all the other things that would have been needed to, to, to keep the, the business going. Mm. Now, the very, very few cars that are, that are around, they were very well built. They're long-lasting. They just didn't build many. These days, they do fetch some quite serious money. You know, if, if one should happen to come your way, do grab it with both hands. Uh, I, I think there are very, very few in the UK, as I say. I've only seen one, I think, in the last 30 years. Yes, I mean, I noticed that there is a Borg Ward Owners Club, uh, borgward.org.uk, if anyone's interested. And, uh, yes, look, looking at some of the pictures on there of the uh, owners' vehicles, they are very pretty cars, aren't they? They're, they're very good-looking cars. I say the, the early uh, family cars were, were not particularly unremarkable and you know, didn't particularly survive well, but the, the Isabella was really, really very, very good looking. That does seem to be the one, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> the star of the show. Mm. Uh, and it was the star of, of several motor shows um, because it was it was well up with the trends of the time. But as I say, within within four or five years, six years uh, of that, um, they basically ran out of technological steam, so to speak. Now, I mean, oddly enough, the name has reappeared, hasn't it? They've been making them in China, apparently, and uh, if the observant amongst us will have noticed that uh, one was running in the Dakar Rally. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah, you see. <laughs> your, your, your books yeah, no, haven't that's... kept up with that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's quite interesting. No, that, that, that there is this fashion of the last decade or so of buying a brand mm. and revitalising it. And I, I mean... Uh, Royal Enfields, for example, is still, I think, being made in India um, <laughs> to 50s and 60s Yeah, they, they've, they've kept going. Yeah. That's, not, that's not a redo. That's a keeping going. Well, <laughs> exactly. But there are other names, particularly on motorcycles, it seems to be, names from, from the past that have uh, suddenly reappeared. Mm. I'm desperately clutching one that comes to mind. I think it was possibly Laverda. But one of the, the the exotic Italian brands, which disappeared many many years ago, mm. there is now a new of. But even with with things like motorcycling leathers, and uh, some of the high cost outdoor clothing 
companies, <laughs> which really haven't existed for years and suddenly are back in fashion because somebody's bought them the name, bought the rights and, and redesigned them and uh, approached a whole new market. And put playing off that uh, re- reputation of an old firm, basically, that... Uh... That's got nothing to do with the new one. Although, oddly enough, the, the Borgward name was more recently brought back, apparently, by Carl Borgward's grandson, I think it was, who was involved uh, this with is... this thing. And they were, they were hoping to do some stuff in Germany, and they were building some stuff in Beijing. Looking at their website, the latest news on their news page was from December 2018, so if that's already almost 18 months out of date, I'm suspecting it's not going as well as they'd like you to think. But as I say, they did run in the Dakar and they did reasonably okay by the looks of it. Uh, and um, there is an argument with Renault about their logo, which is diamond shaped. So who, who knows that uh, what's going on out there? We live uh, in curious times and uh, there is no more curious than um, the evolution of the motor industry. So I think that's uh, more than enough chat for another week. Uh, what are you up to this week then, Graham? Well, uh, having just ordered some parts for the two new cars so I can do a fuller service. Um, so I'm going to be fairly busy, hopefully not too much under the car, but certainly filters and you know plugs and bits and pieces. That uh, With the two new cars, I just want to bring them up to the, to the top line in terms of servicing so i haven't got to worry about it for a while okay all the things um, that we do with new cars that uh, we aren't entirely sure about their histories and when they were last done that's just about it the peugeot i have no idea how long those bugs have been in there but i suspect possibly since it was new it does no harm to give it new ones i'm investing the princely sum of maybe 50 60 quid on each car on sort of basic fundamental stuff um, that i can do fairly quickly and easily and just be reassured in my own mind that it's been done. So, yeah, so these, these are yeah, things I'm... we can all be doing, nice and simple, and uh, obviously refer to the UK Motor Talk website and uh, various other places on YouTube and the like if uh, you don't know quite what you're looking for. Yeah, exactly so. There's plenty of places to look, but, of course, uh, UK Motor Talk will give you lots and lots of information about basic servicing and about the things you should be doing to your car, including videos on how to do them. So uh, make your enforced leisure productive leisure. Just take care. And we'll talk to you again in a week or so. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.